0: Amen. Amen. Hey, good morning, City Light. Good morning. Good morning. morning. My name is Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. And if you brought your Bible or you have a device, I want you to go and meet me in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. Uh, A warm welcome to you. If you happen to be new with us this morning, uh, we are working our way through a sermon series where we're using selected scriptures. Um, and sometimes the parables that Jesus taught with, to communicate what is a church after God's own heart. Um, our, Our desire in this is to say, God, we want to love what you love. We want to want and desire what you want and desire. God, we actually want to have a distaste for the things that you have a distaste for. We want to have satisfaction in the things that you're satisfied with. And so um, along the way, we have been learning through God's word that a church after his own heart is a church that is receptive and soft in its heart toward his word. We're learning that a church after God's own heart is a church that trusts God completely by virtue of him being unchangeably good. We are learning that a church after God's own heart is a church that chooses to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us, we're learning that a church after God's own heart is a church that sees God in all of His beauty and holiness, and believes that God can transform us and bring beauty and holiness to us. This morning, by way of introduction, uh, you may have heard this story, but I'll never forget the headline. I think it was when I was maybe a, a junior in college. It had to have been two thousand nine, two thousand ten, something like that, and. Uh, there was a famous magician who's part of a duo. His name is uh, Penn Gillette. Uh, he's a part of the, the ma- magician duo Penn and Teller, I believe is what they're called. And he made news because uh, he told testimony of an interaction that he had with a Christian at one of his magic shows. Uh, he had finished this huge performance, all these fans were there. He's sitting at this table and he's just signing book and autograph after book and autograph, himself being uh, an outspoken atheist. And there was a man standing off to the side of the table, waiting patiently, um, who had a New Testament, Gideon's Bible, in his hand. And after a while, um, Penn recounts the story and said the man, he came over to him, complimented him on the show, handed him this Bible, said, hey, I wrote a note in this for you. Said the man was very complimentary, um, not defensive, looked him right in the eyes. Didn't seem like anything he was saying was empty, flattery, or that he had some self-fulfilling agenda. He said that he was really kind and nice and sane. And he talked with him, and um, here's what Penn said. I quote, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you don't know what that word means, that is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, evangelizing so that someone might be converted to faith in Jesus. He said, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or getting eternal life or whatever you believe, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it might make it socially awkward, dot, 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 how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, but that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I just tackle you. And this idea of salvation is a lot bigger than a truck. What Penn Gillette did in telling that story is that he, he goes further than implying that sharing the gospel evangelizing non-believers is the most loving thing a Christian can do. He actually implies that not evangelizing is the least loving thing that a Christian can do. Uh, I want to invite you to look at the first two verses of Luke chapter 15 with me. And in these verses, uh, I want to set the context for where we're headed. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I'm going to stop right there. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders had a perception of sinners and tax collectors. It worked itself out in practical ways. They didn't want to occupy the same room as them. They refused to teach them God's word. There was no place for friendship or relationship with a bad, non-practicing Jew. Sinners covered a broad spectrum of people. They were not walking in God's ways. They were not adhering to the moral laws of Moses. They uh, were not participating properly in customs and rituals. They were not keeping certain religious traditions. They didn't look the right way, act the right way. Tax collectors... Not as broad, bad, very bad. Tax collectors in that time were exploiters. They were manipulative. They were known as being unjust. And the Mishnah, a Jewish document from a century after Jesus, describes robbers and thieves and tax collectors synonymously. They're all the same. And so the religious people, they grumbled, they complained, they murmured at the sight of Jesus, this holy man, talking, and being at ease, and dining, and enjoying time spent with such people. In their view, a rabbi dining with people meant that he approved, he affirmed, he blessed them. So these two verses right out of the gate are so paramount, the context that they give are so paramount in understanding the parables that Jesus is going to proceed to teach, and what they reveal to us about the heart of God. I've titled this morning's sermon, very simple, Love the Lost. Love the Lost. Jesus is gonna use a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son to teach the same lesson. And here's why this matters. When we... Take in this story this morning. We consider what it means to be a church after God's own heart. If we don't understand the heart of our God for lost people, that it is the angels, the heavens, our own God's joy that lost people would be found. That it's his joy when sinners come home. We will never... Love and serve and pursue and move toward and have a passion for seeking out people who have not yet bowed their knee to Jesus. Who have not yet been forgiven for their sin. Who have not yet experienced the abundant life that Jesus Christ gives. A church after God's own heart will be known as a body of people. Not a place with programs, but a people who are friendly and receptive and warm toward everyone. Everyone. A people who care and have resonance and relationship with everyone. A community that is receptive, the way Jesus was, toward sinners. Because sinners are all that there are. City Light, here's the thing. These are parables directed toward a spiritual disease. It's a disease that um, has threatened and broken the church for centuries. It's a disease that is very much alive in us right here, right now. It's the disease of pride, the disease of self-righteousness, the holier than thou disease, (laughs) diagnosable, the disease of religious hypocrisy. So I want us to learn as a church this morning from Jesus I want us to look in Luke chapter 15 and see what he has to say to these self-righteous religious leaders. Starting in verse 3, here's the stories that he tells. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders Rejoicing, I want to stop really quick. The picture here is incredible. A flock of 100 sheep, all of the same value. One of those sheep wanders off. A good shepherd, a responsible shepherd, worth any grain of salt, as these Pharisees would have known, leaves the 99 and goes and pursues and chases after that one sheep. Sheep are dumb. They have no mechanism for defense. They are helpless animals. And the shepherd will go to great lengths to find that sheep. And what does he do? He doesn't grab the collar of the sheep and begin to walk it back, right? He doesn't, um, I don't know, kick the sheep. He he literally (laughs) picks the sheep up. And you've seen the picture before, right? He puts the sheep up around his shoulders, And he would take a rope and tie the sheep's front and back legs together right here and hold it. And he would walk and march however far he needed to march to get back to the flock. And when he finds the sheep, he does something. He rejoices. He is a rejoicing seeker of sheep. The story goes on right after that. Um, Verse 6, when he comes home, (laughs) the rejoicing's not over. He calls together his friends and his neighbors Saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then Jesus is going to drive home. The point, just so I tell you, there will be more joy. City Light, please listen to this. I'm begging you. This is an amazing verse. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There will be more joy in heaven amongst the angels the presence of God over one sinner, one sinner, one person out of billions who repents their sin and comes home to God. Then 99 righteous people who think that they have no need of repentance. He goes on in verse eight, or what woman, come at it from a different angle, having 10 silver coins, her whole savings, if she loses one coin, a 10th of it, Does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And what does she do? When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. And how does Jesus explain this one? It's not new. Verse 10 Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One. This is amazing. What we see here in these two small, short parables is a God who seeks after and pursues people. We see the worth of an individual soul to our God. Mm. We love and trust and believe in a God who seeks and saves. That's right. And I, um, I'm i reading this and I realize that um, the longest recorded parable of Jesus is still yet to come. Like he's told both of these stories and then he, he has to see something on their face or think they're not getting it yet, and so he goes on to tell another story. I hate to be this guy. I know you're going to be like, really, again, I love the office, okay? It made me think of this. It made me think of when um, in the office, there's an accountant in the office. His name's Oscar, and Oscar comes in, and he's talking to Michael, the, the regional manager over this paper company, and he says, hey, we've got a surplus in our final accounts of the fiscal year, and uh, gives him the papers and shows Michael all the, the graphs and the charts and the spreadsheet and Michael's nodding his head and he's looking at it and he's like looks great, looks great the guy has no idea what he's looking at he doesn't have any clue and so what does he do? He, he sees the cameras on him because the show's based on like a documentary crew following a bunch of people in our office so he kind of glances and he realizes that he needs to figure out what's actually being said here but he doesn't want to give it away so he goes yeah let's play a game why don't you explain this to me like I'm 8 years old and so Oscar goes on, uh, okay, and explains to him how he would explain it to an eight-year-old. And, you know, he's following along, hmm, yeah. And, if, you know, Oscar gets to a certain point, and Michael's like, you know what? Explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> just keeps, keeps going. Eventually, at the very end, uh, Michael seems to understand what's going on. But here's his final line. He says, okay, uh, I, I think I get it. I'll break it down in terms of, uh, okay, I, I think I'm getting you. And then the scene just ends. To move on to the next thing. I can't help but think that Jesus is experiencing the same thing when he's talking to people who are so fixed in their ways. Are we fixed in our ways? So used to the way things are supposed to be. Are we so used to the way that things are supposed to be? So swimming in a certain Christian subculture of their day that is actually not the kingdom of God. That he goes on to tell this story. And what he proceeds to tell them is, The longest story that he tells, it's a story regarded by some secular writers, famous writers in human history, as the greatest story ever told. So captivating, so beautiful in its delivery. It's the parable of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus is going to say, You'd agree with me about the shepherd. You would understand the need for a shepherd to seek out one lost sheep. You'd agree with me about the coin. The value of a day's wages to a woman's household. How much more precious is the soul of a human being? The eternal soul that Yahweh, our God, values with no estimation. And so he jumps right in verse 11. Would you read this with me? And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Uh, Quick comment on that. Um, Back then, uh, you had two sons, right? This would have been an inheritance given, and two-thirds of that inheritance would go to the firstborn son. One-third would go to the younger son. Um, This son is looking at his father and basically saying, I hope that you just die because all I want is not you, but your inheritance. I want your property. I want your money, because I want to do with it what I want to do. And not many days later, verse 13, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And what did he do? There, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to do something unthinkable, to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, stop right there. But when he came to himself, but when he came to his senses, but when he realized what's true, you ever been there? This story is our story. It's the human story. It's the story of people who demand from God all of his gifts, all of his provision, all of his blessing, but do not want the God who gives it. It's the story of people who look at God and say, I'm a better God and will be a better God of my life than you are or ever could be. It's the story of people who trust so much more in the wisdom of man than they do the wisdom of creator God. It's the story of people who give themselves away time and time again to functional gods to endeavors and passions and things in their life that actually end up leaving them in the exact same place they were before or worse off. It's the story of people who are born worshipers from the womb. They are always worshiping something or someone. You are never not worshiping. You are made and inclined to worship and give worth and value to something bigger than yourself, something beyond you. That's always happening in our lives. And it's a story of people who trade God for anything else to put our hope in, to put our trust in, to pursue, to believe in, to have faith in. The human story is a story of people who come up empty, who are Chasing things and keep buying things and keep dreaming about the next thing and planning the next thing and hoping in a preferred future and wishing for things and consuming new information and running and running and running and running. And hope evades us. True peace. Peace evades us. Joy and happiness and satisfaction evades us. And some days we're left asking the question, what is all of this for? What's it for? Kate and I were um, out this week in Norfolk, Nebraska to celebrate the life of her grandpa who passed. He was an amazing man. Um, I mean, really, he was faithful uh, to his marriage, I think, for 63 years. He helped plant a church a long time ago and was faithful to that church for decades. He was a present, caring, loving grandpa. Um, It was so fun to celebrate his life, but you know how it is when you're at a funeral and you start to think about the kind of story that your life is going to tell. You're sitting there and you're realizing, I'm going to be here one day. What kind of legacy am I going to leave? What will be said of me at my funeral? Um, what will be the things that I treasured and I pursued and the things that I unapologetically chased after in my life? Was it the things that matter most? And you ask the question, what am I living for? I just want to say praise God for those moments of sober thinking. Have you been there before? Praise God for moments in our life where just things slow down, there's no more noise, there's no more busyness, we can't escape anymore. We have to actually stop and pause and look ourselves in the mirror and ask critical questions that honestly evaluate our life. Praise God for those moments. I think that's God's grace. I think God uses that to draw us back to him, to lift our eyes up to heaven where they belong. God uses that in our life to just say, I'm here. I'm here, I'm waiting. My hands are extended to you. Come home, return to me. In me is life that can never be taken from you. God is so good to seek us out and search for us and move toward us and appeal to us over and over and over again, even when we don't want to hear it. And here's what we don't want to hear. I think of um, when I was a uh, freshman and sophomore in college, I this, this story is me, uh, lived the, the very typical life of got out of my parents, you know, uh, under their roof, went off to college in another state, knew no one on campus, said yes to every illicit invitation that was given to me, lost my scholarship, spent those two years just promiscuous drinking, uh, did not go to church, just... Lost. Can I just use that word? Because that's what it is. Lost. I did not want to believe that the abundant life, that the best life, the most hopeful life, the most fulfilling life, the most secure life, the most loving life, the most peaceful life, the most satisfying life, the most adventurous life, the most wonderful human life is lived in Christ Jesus and in no one else. I just didn't want to believe it. And here's what happened. I got around people who received me. I got around people who loved me. I got around people who expected nothing from me. People who served me. People who, when they saw me take any step of faith, they threw a party. They rejoiced. They celebrated my progress in faith. And it changed my life. God used the community of people in college to find me. And it changed everything. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that. Um, I just want you to know when when this chapter uses the words, when he came to himself. Um, another translation will say when he came to his senses, when he finally found himself. It's language for repentance. It's, it's language that... Um, Shows that the son admits that he was wrong and that God is right, that the father was right and he was wrong. It's language that that shows um, how utterly failing sin is, how it overpromises and it underdelivers at every turn in life. It's realizing uh, I have been given all of this from God. Even a non-Christian has been given provision and blessing and 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 grace and life and breath from God, and I have done what this son did, I've squandered it. I've not stewarded it. I've not responded to it. I've squandered it. I've wasted it. He was ready to repent. He was ready to own his sin. He was ready to make a change to his attitudes, his thinking, his everything. He longed for some kind of restoration. Now, If you keep reading, here's the kind of restoration he desired. It wasn't even full reconciliation with his dad. He says in... Uh, Verse 17, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. I'll take it. And so this is what he does. He, verse 19 uh, or or 20, he arose and he came to his father. And I just want to stop right here. How do you think the father is going to respond to this? How do you think the father is going to respond to his repentance? Like, do we actually know what he did? He took all of his inheritance and he went and wasted it. He said, father, you might as well go die so I can have what I want from you. I don't want you. I'm going to do my own thing. Look what the father does. But while he was still a long way off, take this in church, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, something a man with his stature in that time would never do and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, his rehearsed lines, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said, shut up. Didn't actually say that. (laughs) He said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Wow, what a story. Please don't miss this. The humility required of a person is often the biggest obstacle to the Christian faith one of the best indicators that you're ready to place your faith in Jesus for the first time and one of the best indicators that you are ready to repent again and again of sin and return to God, come home to God, even as a Christian, is that you feel the need to be reconciled to God. You feel a separation from him. You feel a deep sadness that you're not right with him. You long to do something about it. You're not satisfied until you can get in his presence and feel at home with him. Feel and receive his grace and his forgiveness. You have a desire to be forgiven, to walk with him to know him, to be changed by him. I just wanna say right here, that's what he does. And you know what? Look at the father's response. Look no further to see God's heart for the lost. Look no further to see how willingly and how quickly and how joyfully God receives a sinner who repents. Look no further to see how God is so close to someone turning toward him. He doesn't give a stairway for someone to climb to reach him. He's standing at the bottom step right there with his hand extended to someone, ready and willing. When the son comes home, what does he have? Nothing. He doesn't smell the part. He doesn't look the part. He doesn't speak the part. He did unthinkable, unclean work. He probably doesn't talk the part. He's not lovable or respectable by any religious standard, but he's repentant and he wants to come home. And what does the father not do? He doesn't discipline him. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't demand all the money back. He does the opposite. He runs, chases down, hugs and kisses his son and throws a party. He celebrates, he rejoices. I mean, just look at this passage. Do you see the joy? Do you see the joy throughout this passage? Jesus is expressing when the lost are found. Verse five, the shepherd is rejoicing. Verse six, the shepherd tells his friends, rejoice with me. Verse seven, there is joy in heaven. Verse 9, the woman tells her friends, rejoice with me. Verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God. Zephaniah 3:17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exhort over you, exalt over you with loud singing. Listen, church, this is leaving no doubt. This is telling us that nothing garners more celebration, nothing warrants a bigger party, nothing so warms and fills the heart of our God than when one person, one person, one person is no longer lost but found. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus carried the cross for our sin. May God's joy be our joy. May God's joy be Be our joy. May his reception of broken, needy, weak people be our reception. May we receive as Christ Jesus has received us. Jesus loves sinners. He runs toward sinners because sinners are all that there are. Jesus is a savior to people who need one, which is all of us. Luke 5.32 says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice it's in the same gospel. We're trying to get something here. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was Jesus' express mission. Additionally, City Light, I just want to say, do we see the precious, cherished nature of a human being in the eyes of our Lord, the worth of a single soul to our God? A church after God's own heart will see people the way that God sees them. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We see you the way God sees you. We want to receive you the way God has received us. God wants you to be found. He wants you to know the life that he gives. He wants to forgive. He wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to change your life. He wants to change you, transform you. We will feel deep in our hearts as a church after God's own heart what God feels when we see people. You matter to God. You were formed and fashioned by God. You were made for relationship with God. You belong to God. You bear his image. You are the crown of his creation. You are precious to him. You are cherished by him. His call is simply this, come home to me. Church, this is so important to the heart of God that Jesus saves the best for last. In case these religious leaders still aren't getting it, what he does in the final verses is he introduces them into the story. The story's not over yet. He essentially um, takes us through how they are the older brother, starting in verse 25. Here's what it says. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Do you know how gracious that is for the father to leave the party and come out to entreat his grumbling son? Unthinkable. Verse 29. But he answered his father look such disrespect. Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this is your brother, He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I love those words. It was fitting. It was fitting to celebrate the lost being found. The older son was angry that the brother was received and and received with such celebration. He took a tone of disrespect. Um, He says, all these years I've been serving you, a a better translation is that I've been slaving for you. You never gave me, really? He's gonna get two thirds of his father's inheritance. You never gave me, He's been living his entire life under the bounty of his father. He never gave me anything. and Then he disassociates himself from his father and his brother. He says, that son of yours. The older son is a picture of a self-righteous churchgoer who just feels like receiving and welcoming people who are not eager to follow God or don't meet the certain standard of what a church person should look like. Um, It's kind of an insult to the righteous person's obedience and their faithfulness and their commitment and their generosity. If you ask me, it's marked by a fear of contamination rather than a fear of God and a confidence that Jesus cleanses. Whatever Jesus encounters, he overcomes. Whatever Jesus encounters, he changes. Do we have that confidence? Um, One of the greatest threats to a church, one of the greatest threats to a church's love and evangelism is that we would forget Don't miss this, church, that we would forget our lostness before Jesus. That each of us would not recount our own story. And think of those days. Think of that season in your life. Think of how God has seen you through. Think of all the ways that God has provided for you, his mercy and his grace on your life. Think of how he protected you, how he nurtured you, how he comforted you, how he strengthened you, how he forgave you, how he is changing you. How far God has brought you and is bringing you right now. Psalm 107.2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Amen? Amen. (laughs) You've heard it said before, churches shouldn't be filled with people who think that they are examples of morality. Churches should be filled rather with people who believe that they are trophies of God's grace. Church is a hospital. Let's live accordingly. Everyone in here who professes Jesus, every Christian in the room right now, you know him because the good news of his grace wasn't withheld from you. Someone close to you ascribed the same worth to your soul that God does. Someone loved you. You were lost. That's what love is. Love prays, love seeks, love searches, love pursues, love persists. Love sees the precious worth of a single soul in the eyes of God and appeals to people that they might be reconciled to him and come home to him. You and I, we were walking in sin. We were spiritually dead. Jesus sought us and saved us. He forgave us. He changed our destiny. He was overjoyed when we returned to him. He threw a party, a party in heaven with the angels. And God himself was thrown when we, when we came to faith in Jesus. Hallelujah. It's amazing to think of that. And so would we be a party throwing church? Would we be a church that gets really excited to see what God's gonna do next? Would we be a church that gets excited to be a church after God's own heart and love the lost? Oh, City Light, that we would believe that Jesus is actually still seeking and saving the lost, that we would expect and pray for and live in light of stories that God is going to rewrite in our midst, in our community, in our workplaces, in our home. And will we hold on to faith that that's his mission? That's what he does. That's the business that God is in and he wants to partner with us in that. Let's pray. God, right now I want to ask for one simple thing in closing. Holy Spirit, would you please restore to us, each of us, the joy of our salvation. And in the joy that we experience and feel from our salvation. Oh God, would we long to feel joy for others' salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name.